Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I believe in America. I follow the rules. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I ain't daddy's little boy anymore. <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, <laughs> where we look at science fiction through the lens of... Imperial Overstretch. And the Anthropocene. Today, we'll be talking about They Live... Or the John Carpenter's weeks. They Live. Or John Carpenter's They Live. Does it's, he have John Carpenter's in front of everything? I don't know if he... It's an interesting question. He doesn't have it in front of everything, but it's in, clearly in front of some it's of them. It's in a things. few of them. Like, yeah. I think it's, like, The Fog and, is John and Carpenter's The Fog. I think Vampires, it was... Yeah, like, there's a there's a couple of them where clearly... He's an interesting guy. I didn't true. do as much research as I kind of wanted to for this. Because <laughs> every time I look into him, I'm reminded, like, he's an odd duck. Yeah. Like, yeah. he's he's got some quirks, including having... He writes the music for every single movie that he does. <laughs> In this case, however, I'm very grateful for that. But yes. It's a stretch for him. The bluesy electronic mm-hmm. is like an interesting hybrid. But I was saying mm-hmm. what we're going to be talking about. Next week, we're talking about Highlander. But oh, after yeah. that, we have a plan. Listeners, yeah. believe it or not, we had an executive committee meeting and we, it was so productive. <laughs> like we sketched things out from here until potentially next February. Now, it's obviously <laughs> subject to change. In fact, it's so subject to change that I'm sure some of you might have expected we were going to do Big Trouble in Little China today, but we're actually That's doing right. They Live. So that shows that we're simultaneously have a plan, but also can respond. Very nimble. We very have to tactical shifts. So like I think that, right. that speaks well for us, yes. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about why we're not talking about Big yes, Trouble yes, in Little China. But we should do our administrative stuff first, Mm -hmm. which is, number one, we have to remind people to become patrons. Mm -hmm. Becoming a patron is the only way you can support the show. Actually, that's not true. It's the only financial way (laughs) you can support the show. And after watching this film, you should realize how important finance is. (laughs) (laughs) You should realize how important it is that we don't have ads on this show. Exactly. Yes. Right? This show is all text, no subtext. You you put sunglasses on... And listen to this show. (laughs) (laughs) It would be the exact same thing because you're not missing anything. You're not missing anything at all. If you do want to become a patron and, you know, subvert capitalism, you can go to patreon.com slash face the nation. There are ways to support the show that have nothing to do with finance, which is to rate and review us wherever you get your pod things uh, or tell your friends and neighbors. You can also reach us on social media, most obviously Twitter. I am at Dan Dresner, and she is? At Anna Marie Cox. And I will put a plug in here for my Instagram account. Because Dan needs to join Instagram because I know he likes watching videos of Molly and Exley. And that is where I post most of my Molly and Exley videos. Oh, okay. This is actually a pretty decent reason for me to join Instagram. I have resisted this for a long, long time. It is actually the new social media for the old. Because <laughs> the youngs have gone all to TikTok. The youngs are all like TikTok and yeah. I don't know, other, there's probably something else snap at face. this point. <laughs> yeah, snap face. <laughs> Slack chat. I, I, I like that portmanteau. <laughs> Slack chat's good. Yes, yes. <laughs> But you can get more Molly and Exley videos than you perhaps want. I don't know. Maybe actually, people I will seem say to really love them. I, I do love the videos, like the the ones you sent me. I mean, again, I am so Team Exley. It's just been I am honestly. Are you a big brother? Honor. Have we been through this? I am a big brother. Yes. Okay. Yes. So you're Team Exley. Yes. Yes. Are you Team Molly Murder Kitten? Well, you know, I'm an only child, so oh, okay. I don't know what this is like <laughs> at all <laughs> to like play fight with a family member. Mm-hmm. I do think it's adorable, like how Molly does not ever take no for an answer. Like, <laughs> it's true. Yes, she just keeps going at him. It's and impressive. And I do wonder if she realizes that he's playing at about ten percent of the strength that he could be playing. I at. suspect that as Molly grows up, she is going to eventually realize that, but maybe not just yet. Because he just, like, I don't know the last video. The last video I posted shows, like, he'll put, he puts his mouth, like, around her. Yeah, that was, I'm glad you finally have video evidence of this because you told me this and it was, I could visualize it, but at the same time it was, was he just doesn't bite. It's just like he just puts his mouth around her. Right. (laughs) And he has big terrier jaws. I mean, he kind of bats her around, like, with his nose, Mm -hmm. but he never uses his paws. He, like, he's being very easy. Actually knows his strength. He's like Superman. He could, 
destroy everything and yet recognizes that he needs to keep his power in check. So I think we've actually answered how I am, which is I'm, <laughs> I have like the world's most adorable dog and cat pair. You do. So yes. my life, despite the fact that the world is not great, mm. I have a very bright spot in my life. But Dan, how are you? I am good. I am in the middle of sort of a big transition, I guess, which is, you know, we are going from full house to empty nest. You know, for the last couple of months, both of my children have been home, which has not been the case for quite some time, ever since my son went off to college. And we are now transitioning to a situation where my son will be in graduate school far, far away from here. And my daughter will also be not far, far, but away from here. And so, you know... How do I put this gently? I'm really looking forward to this. <laughs> <laughs> I love my well, children. I love my children a great deal. I am looking for, you know what I'm looking forward to? The idea that like, maybe, you know, it'll be just some night and suddenly we're like, hey, let's just go out to dinner. We could do that. Like we can be spontaneous. I totally thought you were going to say some night we can be like, it's eight o'clock. Let's go to bed. <laughs> Also that, either option is possible. Like the point is we have like, you know, there's no one else in the house. No one else That's right. is judging us, which opens up some interesting possibilities. So I'm looking yes. forward to that. And to be clear, I just meant like going to bed. Like no, just no, no, like I the pleasure of like I, being in your jammies at the 8 age, o'clock I, in the evening. No, it's funny. I have, so I, I don't know if I ever told you this. I have this theory that like when I was a kid, did you ever watch Zoom on PBS? Yeah. Okay. As naive as I was, I remember watching Zoom and I would watch it in pajamas because it was on it like in the evening. And I remember being so jealous that those kids could were, were still wearing clothes, even though I'm sure it was taped and so on and so forth. And I think being a kid is all about like wanting to grow up to the point where you can be an adult and actually wear clothes at night. And then becoming an adult is all eventually about wanting to be at the age where you can just wear pajamas whenever you when want. When can I put on my pajamas? Yes. That is like the eternal question. It is the one there. good thing That is the question about, yeah. I ask myself every day. It's the it's best like, thing about winter. Is it winter. time to put on my pajamas? The yet? best thing about winter up here is that like, it, my rule is if the sun goes down, the pajamas come on. There and you so, go. Yeah. yeah. So, Dan, mm-hmm. listeners now know we were supposed to talk about Big Trouble in Little China and decided not to. Let's talk about why we decided not yeah to. so admittedly I, i'm gonna follow my sword here i think big trouble in little china was my idea because i was thinking about yes, it was. <laughs> well i was thinking about big dumb you know 1980s movies and i did recall like this was a movie i remember watching on cable and thinking even at the time this is kind of goofy interesting however watching it in the cold light of the 2020s it would be safe to say that we both found it unworthy of hot sci-fi summer (laughs) although i suspect for different reasons i believe anna you thought it was a touch too racist whereas i thought it was a touch too sexist well you know what it can be both yes like the reese's peanut butter cup of offensive i was gonna say we could have had a debate like it could have been like (laughs) listeners you were spared an hour of like it's racist no it's sexist you know um, you got your racism and my sexism it's called intersectionality dan (laughs) You got your racism mixed up with that sexism. I love that. That's good. It is both. The racism is like, for me, like, it's just so over the top almost. And it's it's that really troubling kind of good liberal racism mm-hmm. where he clearly means to just he means talk well. about how awesome yes. Chinese culture is. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet... <laughs> Whereas for me, the sexism is even more over the top because there is literally a character in that film. Who does not speak. Who do, Yes, she is like, she's like the fourth lead. I mean, she's not like, you know, she's like an important character she's in the movie. Line, actually. She's like Chinese and she has green eyes. That is the extent of the characterization of her. Like, there is nothing else about her. You and know, she's sold into, into sex slavery. Right, <laughs> like, right. It's like, well, hold on. It's, now, 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 now. The low pan was going to make an honest woman out of her. Like, that oh, was a marriage. Right, that's right, that's right. That was it not was, sex slavery. It, well, initially was a sex she was. slavery operation Right, there, that was how she originally gets kidnapped, and then low <laughs> pan is going to, like, marry her. But, yeah. The, anyway, it, it, it's... It, Go ahead. I mean, no, it was. It's also just bad. Yeah, it's it's a waste of Kurt Russell. It's a waste of mm. Kim Cattrall. There are a few funky special effects that I actually liked. The guy yeah. who like blew himself up, you know, by you yes. know, that was the thing that first came to mind, and that was why the I think hairy I eyeball said. creature also oh, that's genuinely true. creepy. Yeah. yeah, I thought. Yeah, there's some. I appreciated Kurt Russell doing a parody of John Wayne. And yeah, I, I agree that. 
I think John Carpenter is trying to subvert the white savior narratives. He bit. does. And we talked about this. Like, And that actually was legitimately interesting because Kurt Russell is willing to play a character, Jack Burton, who really doesn't entirely know what's going on. And furthermore, is quite upfront about saying he doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. So in that sense, it's like it's not. Yeah, it's racist and it's sexist, but like it's not completely devoid of value. It, and it's also a weird entry in John Carpenter's oeuvre. There's no other way it's to a, put it. That's the other reason why I kind of didn't want to do it yeah. is that I sort of knew that. I've never seen it. I just actually, just by the title and the whole like look of it, I'm like, it's probably pretty racist. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was looking into it a little bit. And mm-hmm. it back in the 80s, it was protested. <laughs> Yeah. Like by, by Asian well, what, what's terrifying is that we did do like the <laughs> like, you, in, I, the, in the innocent eighties. Yeah, people thought it was racist. <laughs> so I will say this: one of the more terrifying aspects of this is that also, as bad as the movie is, apparently Carpenter looked at the original version of the script and thought, "Whoa, this is super racist. We got like we got to make some changes to that." You know. And I do think John Carpenter is is a good liberal in, in both the good and bad way mm-hmm. that that can yeah. be right yes. and. There is a defense of that movie by some Asian Americans and AAPI well, right, folks, and including yeah. our favorite director of Thor. Oh, Taika Waititi? Takia oh, Waititi. That's right. Yeah. that's right, because among other things, there is clearly a Big Trouble in Little China reference in Thor Love and Thunder. So and there are some defenders of it. Yeah. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's uncomfortable to watch for me. And the other thing I'll say about it, it, it the, sorry, one of the defenses, that's what I meant to go back to, is it is try to subvert the white savior stereotype. So mm-hmm. there's that. And then also it apparently really, they, they cast a lot of Asian American actors. They did. A ton. Yeah. And they're, they're not bad roles. They're just backup roles. Yeah. That's sort of the thing about it that's kind of offensive in the stereotyping. And... Apparently, this is also the heyday of some really terrible, offensive <laughs> Asian American inflected films, including The Golden Child and mm-hmm. Sixteen Candles. Another, uh, <laughs> Sixteen Candles, that's right. But I'm thinking specifically, and then there's like a Mickey Rourke movie that's set in Chinatown that I'm blanking on oh, the name of. No. But they were all being made kind of at the same time, mm-hmm. and apparently. John Carpenter took a lot of pride in a bunch of the actors from this movie getting a start in their career and actually appearing in some other exploitative movies. But, you know, like they're happy for their career. Like one of the defenses that I read was from a couple of the actors in the movie who felt like Carpenter was great. Mm -hmm. And this was the start of a good career for them. And where would they have started otherwise? So... The but point it, is, I want to get back to how it's just not a very good movie. Yeah, it's, it, it, I would <laughs> tend to agree with that. I mean, it really is. No, it's not that good. And so when Anna suggested we watch They Live, as someone who had never seen They Live, but of course knew about all the memes, I was intrigued by this and, and was happy to, to shift on the fly. And so I do thank you for this suggestion, Anna. So let's talk about viewing experience. This is something I wanted to add as a new section because we started to try and say like where you can watch this stuff. And Mm -hmm. I think it might be just more interesting to say where we watched it. Okay, fair enough. So what was your viewing experience? What streaming service did you use? What what, did you think? So I watched this on Amazon Prime. I I rented it via Amazon Prime because it it, uh, it was not available on any of the streaming services otherwise. And one of the advantages I will say, like occasionally it's annoying because it means you have to spend five bucks to watch it, which is whatever. But... I will say one of the things I do like by renting the movie on Amazon Prime is that usually Prime always includes some trivia notes about the film. Mm -hmm. So, like, I actually did learn, you know, it's always entertaining to watch that way. And what about you, Anna? I watched it via my AMC Plus subscription, (laughs) which is unfortunately not about how extra I am. You cannot subscribe to the Anna Marie Cox Plus channel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, the Audrey Cox Plus channel would just consist of a live cam of Exley and, and Molly. That is true. That is true, with occasionally me breaking in to be grumpy about there something. There you go. Exactly. I also watched it in the middle of the day, which I, I still don't do very often, even though... Even though you been, can. Like, it's you don't have a regular day I was thinking, point. it has been 20 years since I went into an office at all. Wow. And like, yet you still like, I mean, on a still, regular basis, but, like I've but, had places that have offices and I've gone in. But what I'm fascinated like, since by I showed is up that, daily at an office. Right. But you still feel it's wrong to watch a movie in the m- middle of the day. Kind of like that's a, yeah. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it still feels like I'm breaking the rule. Yeah. And I will say this, like I was so we originally agreed to do this and I was like, OK, I got I should watch it really quickly because we weren't sure when we were going to record. And so I started it and I thought like maybe I would catch about 
you know, the first 45 minutes one night and then watch the rest of it the next day. And I will say, I when I realized how short the film was, I was actually able to watch it that night. And I was very happy about that because it, it like, kept me hooked. Carpenter keeps it tight. Yeah. Pretty much. Like this movie does have a section that drags. Hmm. We can talk about it yeah, maybe, yeah. but for the most part, I actually think it's a pretty economical movie. Yes, I would like, agree. It, it gets the story told. Yeah. Now, our next section, Chekhov's <laughs> What's It? What do you think? <laughs> what shows up early and you know it's going to show up later? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I guess Chekhov's sunglasses. I mean, we do see them and they <laughs> appear later, but I don't know. What about what about you, Anna? I had Chekhov's enigmatic female television executive. <laughs> Yeah, Fair enough. You like yeah. that? No, that is good because it's true. Like at one point she in the plot, you think she's going to disappear. She's yeah. not really in the film all that much, to tell you the truth. So yeah, that's entirely fair. That's, that's a better Chekhov, I think, than mine. All right, let's get to the story behind the story. Anna, tell us about John Carpenter's decision to make this film and why he thought Rowdy Roddy Piper was the dude to cast, because I have some issues with that. Yes, and I texted you this, Dan, yeah. which is that I assumed he couldn't get Kurt Russell. Yes. We, <laughs> one of the things I texted you, and I said this, is that like I wish this was the movie Kurt Russell and Kim Cattrall appeared in. Yes, it would have been a better movie. Yeah. But apparently, he's a huge WrestleMania fan. Ah, fair John enough. John Carpenter. Okay. And he cast Rowdy Roddy Piper because, quote, unlike most Hollywood actors, Roddy has life written all over him. <laughs> Who knows what that means? But I mean, I guess I know what it means, but I don't think it's true. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't quite Roddy buy Roddy that. Piper has life written all over. I mean, Keith David definitely. Oh yeah, Keith David yeah. is like world weary when he was like twenty. Probably. No, this, I actually think this might be the movie I've seen the youngest I've ever seen Keith David, and he's old in this film. Like he's yeah. he's seen shit in this film. Yeah. yeah. Just for to put it into the Carpenter oeuvre, mm -hmm. it was made in 1988 after Big Trouble in Little China, mm -hmm. before Escape from L.A. There's some yeah. other movies in there, but those are the ones you'd recognize. It's based on a short story, 8 O'Clock in the Morning, by Ray Nelson, who I looked into just a little bit. Kind of fascinating guy. Mm -hmm. Number one, he's credited with inventing the propeller beanie meme for science fiction nerds. Okay. Wow. Like having a character yeah. in a... Yeah. No, right. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. And he was a beat generation hanger on. Like he hung out in Paris with Sartre and Ginsburg wow. and Burroughs. Huh. Then he wrote some trashy science fiction. Who knew? Fair enough. There's some subtleties about this script, Dan, that I'm going to get into <laughs> right now. So Yes. The picture's premise was come uh, come up with by Carpenter when he was started watching TV again, he says. And he realized they're just trying to sell you things. No. Dan. Yeah. Oh, my God. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. They're just trying to sell you shit. Holy crap. Uh <laughs> Actually, you know what? Anna, I, like, it's worth pointing out that this is like in the 80s, this was obvious. This might not be obvious to many of our younger listeners, because if you subscribe to a streaming service, it is entirely possible you are watching things that have no commercials in them whatsoever. Yeah. Well, except we, you know, except so YouTube, unless you have premium, yeah. you got ads. And then also there's fucking your social feed. Has ads all over it. That's true, so but like I, I think I think the younger generation is pretty familiar yeah, with trying yeah, to be sold okay, shit. Fair enough. Okay, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but anyway, so the picture's premise is that the Reagan Revolution is run by aliens from another galaxy. <laughs> Free enterprisers have, from outer space have taken over the world and are exploiting Earth as if it's a third world planet. As soon as they exhaust all of our resources, they'll move to another world. I began watching TV again, and I quickly realized that everything we see is designed to sell us something. <laughs> It's all about wanting us to buy something. The only thing they want to do is take our money. I do so. like the connections. I did not think there were connections between They Live and Independence Day, but clearly <laughs> in both of them, the aliens are trying to take away our resources. So there you go. He acquired the rights to the short story, and there was also a comic book adaptation. He wrote a screenplay which combined Nelson's basic story structure with the structure of a classic Western, which now that... I read that, like, I actually do see it. Like, a stranger comes to town, kind of. Sort of, yeah, maybe. Uh, okay. He's also mentioned that uh, the story is influenced by Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. He did, doesn't mention the whole decadent culture thing that we talked about when we did uh, At the Mountains of Madness as being a Lovecraftian critique mm -hmm. of, of late capitalism. Yeah. He talked about it as Lovecraft's vision of the world was that there's always something underneath there's always a darker 
real thing happening that we cannot see with our naked eye. Yeah, that is that. Yeah, that's fair. And of course, about that truth that we cannot see with our naked eye. (laughs) The truth is, quote, seen in black and white. It's as if the aliens have colorized us. That means, of course, that Ted Turner is really a monster from outer space. Impeccable logic, Anna. I know. He's good. He's good. Let's talk a little bit about what the movie has influenced. Shepard Ferry, now that I mentioned that, it should be obvious, I guess. He of the Obama Hope poster. Ah, okay. His original, you know, street art was Obey. Oh, okay. That's right. Yes, yes. And it's even the same font. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Green Day did a video referencing it. Slavoj Zizek <laughs> wrote a book um, <laughs> that begins with an analysis of They Live. Uh, Jonathan Lethem has written a book-length analysis of the movie. And Darren Aronofsky, yeah. in The Wrestler, there is another seven-and-a-half-minute fight scene that apparently is a homage to this seven-and-a-half-minute fight scene. Yeah. Which is, by the way, a lot of people write about that fight scene. I personally got up and had a snack during it. Oh, no. But <laughs> it is seven and a half minutes long. There's a lot of craft uh, that went into that. Thought to be one of the longest two-person, like, no gimmick yep. fight scenes in modern movies. Mm-hmm. And Carpenter loved it. Mm-hmm. It was his his attempt to do WrestleMania <laughs> in the film. Also, apparently, they really did hit each other. I so I heard something differently on that. I, I watched a couple interviews, and Keith David basically huh. said, "Doing my work? Are you trying to horn in on my I'm job?" Sorry, like it it popped up on my YouTube feed. But right. Keith David apparently said that like Piper never hit him; he did hit Piper. <laughs> that and, and mostly he was saying this is sort of it was a credit you know, to Piper's one skill, which is he's a professional to wrestler, which means he's really good at fake fighting. Yeah. Whereas David was not quite as good. I'm sorry. Also, that's uh, Slavoj Zizek. Um, it's a <laughs> documentary that begins with his analysis of of they live not a book (laughs) i almost sent you what he has to say about it because it's just like it's about capitalism oh well now i see why he's there you go greatest philosophers in the ip is a flat circle Mm -hmm. section uh, carpenter was apparently working on a remake in 2010 (laughs) then it was sort of taken away by the studio and shifted from being a remake to a readaptation of eight o'clock in the morning, quote, ditching the satirical and political elements. Wow. Okay. In some ways, that's the best proof of Carpenter's vision that you could imagine. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. So maybe, you know, maybe, as we'll discuss, maybe the movie is more subtle than, than I, I kind of give it credit for. One thing that I really liked is there are some good lines. Oh, yeah. Even if there are some sort of ham-fisted critiques of capitalism but one of the ones i liked is most of us just sell out right away yeah that was good yeah and apparently that is something that a movie executive said to carpenter <laughs> <laughs> it's nice that he was getting source material raw material from the studio that that works for him yeah so um i am big i actually really do love john carpenter in general i'm excited to do the thing for mm-hmm. cold sci-fi winter mm-hmm. And I, I hope we do the fog at some point. We're um, gonna have to do escape from New York, also. I think have to do the escapes. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, uh, I, I think he's really idiosyncratic director. I think it's interesting to have someone for so long continue to make movies that are so his. Yeah, right. And in this way, that's not ex- it's commercial, but also clearly he has a vision. Mm-hmm. Like I, I kind of love it. I, yeah. I have just a soft spot for him. So, oh, no, no, no. Even it's, though I, I did not like Big Trouble Little China. Yeah, yeah, no, but, uh, but I do think that was the exception and not the rule. So, I think yeah. so, too. All right, let's get the plot, Dan. All right, let's start with Act One, I Believe in America. A nameless drifter, he's called Nada in the credits, so we're going to go with that. But just to be clear, his name is never actually said in the film. Walks into Los Angeles from Denver looking for a job. He gets a gig at a construction site. At- a union A union job, that's true. After his shift ends, another worker, Frank, takes him to the hottest shantytown in L.A. run by a dude named Gilbert. This place has everything, Anna. Soup kitchens, blind preachers, and random televisions in a field being interrupted by hackers claiming that signals are enslaving the population. Nada notices Gilbert and the preacher crossing the street into a church and investigates. He sees a lot of technical equipment and hears them arguing about the need to boost their broadcast. He then sees Gilbert packing up a lot of stuff from the church and vamoosing. Later that night, an awful lot of cops, and I mean a whole shit ton of cops, (laughs) 
come to rouse the church and the shantytown. Not evades capture, but the shantytown is raised. Anna, one of Carpenter's cleverer touches, I mean, there's not a lot that's subtle in this film, but I actually thought this was a somewhat subtler point than most of it, was to actually make it painful for ordinary citizens to process the truth. So at the shantytown, folks complain that the hijack broadcasts give them a headache, and the very important sunglasses we'll get to in a moment also have side effects. Care to comment on the symbolism? Yeah, thank you for calling it symbolism, Dan. That's that's very generous. You're right. Of the things that are subtle yeah. in the movie, I guess it's kind of subtle. Yeah. <laughs> um, it did occur to me when I was thinking about this question is that Carpenter must have a lot of confidence in his own filmmaking, which actually see the conversation I just had. Yeah. Generally speaking, if you're someone who names movies my first name or my <laughs> name and then the movie... I mean, it, 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 Be- I, I assume Quentin Tarantino is sort of like like this as well. But yeah, yeah. Go yeah. Ahead. He does not worry about the truth being a headache for his viewers. Right. Right. Because yeah. this movie, you do not need the special sunglasses, right? Like that. <laughs> this movie is the truth, you know, all the way down. Yeah. It is still enjoyable. And I guess maybe towards the end, we can talk about why it's still enjoyable, even though it kind of beats you over the head. Yeah. Like it shouldn't be. You know, right. There are movies that could be this didactic that are not good. There are so many movies that are didactic and not good. But this is an entertaining film. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to note that there is some egregious shirtlessness early on in the movie (laughs) that you may have noticed. Um, And also like Frank wearing a pastel tank top. Mm -hmm. And this gave me a fun game to play. I've seen this movie a lot. So this is a thing for me to do that's kind of new, which is. Is this really a love story between Frank and Nada? Oh yeah, I've only watched this film once, and that was that was my takeaway as well. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. Like it's, like they're kind of an odd couple. Oh, they, yeah. And then the fight scene, of course, is yeah, they have the to sex, fight yeah. because yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, if you have not seen the movie, <laughs> I promise you it'll be even more fun if you look at it through that lens. <laughs> Dan, I have to correct you on one point, which is: is it a shanty town? Or an anarcho-syndicalist intentional community. <laughs> it sounds like Monty Python. We're not a shantytown. That is We're actually an anarcho-syndicalist <laughs> collective. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes. It's an intentional community. I, I'm so happy you noted the number of cops that come to raise the encampment oh, because yes. it's one of the times where I'm like, is this supposed to be funny? <laughs> I think it's supposed to be funny, but it's like a. It is like it's a over the top tune yeah. of police show up. <laughs> like they just keep. Yes, yes. Apparently there's no other crime in Los Angeles in the late 1980s. This is the thing they have to focus on. That's right. Yeah, you know what was going on with police in the late 1980s. They had nothing better to do. (laughs) Well, actually, speaking of that, uh, I want to note what seems like a pretty clear um, stab at intentional, like, racial diversity. Mm -hmm. For a movie made at this time, like... It's actually pretty racially diverse, like in the background scenes as like well, particularly in that shanty well. town. That is a safe statement. Well, the yeah. shanty town, yeah. yes, but not just but also, that. You're right. Like, yeah, in all the scenes that aren't of the yuppies, mm-hmm. like there are some black people and Latino people hmm. kind of in the background moving around and stuff. Hmm. And that's just you don't always see that in movies made by white people from this era. Fair so I think it's something he's doing pretty intentionally. Okay. All right, let's move on to Act 2, I Wear My Sunglasses All Day. Nada goes back to the church the morning after the raid and finds a box of sunglasses. He takes the box downtown and puts on a pair and stashes the rest. The sunglasses render the world in black and white, and boy do they have some other Rod Serling-esque effects. They also reveal the subliminal messages contained in magazines, billboards, and television programs, mostly exhortations to consume, reproduce, and conform. The glasses also show that some ordinary-looking people are actually not-so-ordinary-looking aliens. These aliens also seem to be among the more affluent Angelinos. It's safe to say Nada does not take this news well. He starts insulting the aliens to their face. They speak into their wristwatches that someone has detected them. Two cops try to subdue Nada, but he shoots them with their own guns. Then, armed with the cop's shotguns, he enters the bank and utters the most iconic line in any of John Carpenter's films. Anna, do the honors. I'm here to kick ass and chew bubblegum. No, 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 no. Okay, 
Right. Now, so iconic, I can't so remember yeah. the order. He says, I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. Kick ass. And I am all out of bubblegum. And bubble I'm gum. all out of bubblegum. Yes. I want to just quickly contrast that to I'll be back. <laughs> it's the evolution of the catchphrase. Yes. Right? Yes. yes. Like, we both were marveled at how, like, subtly, <laughs> subtly, I mean, how just straightforwardly I'll be back is delivered. And integral and to is the like, plot is I'll be back. Hey, yeah. everyone, I'm making a catchphrase. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it's particularly true in this case because Nada has had barely, like, ten lines of dialogue prior to that line. Anyway, Nada shoots up the bank, killing more aliens, but curiously chooses not to steal any money. He escapes because well, it is your god. It says is your it's yeah, not really money. Enough, it yeah. says this is your god on it. So he escapes by taking TV executive Holly Thompson hostage in a parking garage and having her drive him away. So, Anna, two thoughts about this act. First, I really did think the black and white scenes were actually extremely effective. It's a special effect where less is more, and I also think. I mean, I'm assuming he's intentionally trying to evoke the Twilight Zone in part in mm. those scenes. Because like, really, I, that was what I kept seeing, thinking when I was watching that. But second, even putting Piper's acting ability aside for a moment, because I actually, this is actually more about the script than it is about him. The biggest weakness in this film is the 180 his character performs after putting on the sunglasses. So he goes from being a relatively wary, silent observer in Act 1 to Act 2, where once he puts on the sunglasses, he is basically an undisciplined blowhard. And that mm -hmm. didn't work terribly well for me. I agree. It only kind of works because of his bad acting. <laughs> <laughs> Since he doesn't sell any emotion very well. <laughs> Fair enough. It's not really, doesn't really bother me that much that he switches because his style of acting, you can't read. I like I mean, the idea that had Kurt Russell played this, he would have been too good of an actor and therefore the, the whipsaw. Well, they would have had to change the script or yeah, something. Yeah, like it would have been more obvious, like how bad that like turn yes, is. Yes, exactly. Like how uncalled for that turn is. Yeah. I also noted it myself. It is a weak part in the movie because especially like it's not clear he's just mad. Like it's, it's. I mean, of course you're mad. Of course, like, this is a revelation. Right. But he but just it, starts sh shooting people up. Yeah, there's like, no it's kind logic. Of a weird... There's no, like, intent what, to what he's doing. It was very, like, you know, I mean, I get that he's suddenly rattled, but but it was. Yeah, why do you go into the bank? Like, I understand yeah. also why he shoots the cops, but then, like, why does he go on a rampage? Right. I will say that up to that point, mm -hmm. I think actually whatever he's doing kind of works. Roddy is doing. No, that's fair, actually. I could watch him walk around and just goggle <laughs> at like the way the world looks for an hour like he it's carpenter more than him right yeah. but like the section where he's just kind of walking around being stunned that this is this is reality right. really works well i think part of the reason it works is that piper doesn't have there's not much dialogue for him right anytime piper yeah. actually says words you know it either comes across as a catchphrase or it's not very good but like throughout the or a bad catchphrase, right? Or bad, yeah. <laughs> but like throughout the first third of the film, where he's like just observing stuff, whether it's sort of you know as someone who thinks he's seen it all, and then someone who is like genuinely shocked. Yeah, to the extent that Piper has any acting ability, that actually does work. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I think I, I think that in a weird way, like the movie does go downhill from the moment that he does that turn. <laughs> like it's still a good movie; people should still watch it, but. It is the first act that I think is the best sort of See, I, technically. I guess so. Although, again, the black and white stuff really works and, and not as reaction works there. But you're right. It's when he it's when the violence starts that I actually think yeah. weirdly the movie starts to, to go. I agree. Take a slightly different turn. All right. Speaking, Speaking of which, of which. <laughs> let's get to act three. <laughs> Just the fights, ma'am. Just the fights. Holly takes Nada back to her place. Once there, he starts crashing from the stress of wearing the sunglasses all day. He tries to get Holly to put on the sunglasses, but in a pretty shocking twist, Holly whacks him over the head with a glass and kicks him out of her window, causing him to tumble down the Los Angeles hills. The next morning, Nada retrieves the rest of the sunglasses he'd cashed uh, just after a garbage truck had grabbed them. Frank shows up to give him the money he'd earned on the construction site, and Nada urges Frank to put on the sunglasses and see the world as it really is. Frank just wants to keep his head down and provide for his family, and what follows is one of the longest, most brutal fights ever put on screen. Six minutes of Frank and Nada just beating the living crap out of each other. There's no special effects, no, like, superhero shit. These are just two guys hitting each other in the nuts. 
Fra- and I did get seven and a half. Maybe they're counting some like preliminary. Yeah, I think it's dialogue. like a little closer to six, but like maybe that includes like the scenes where they're arguing with each other first. Yeah. yeah. The point is, Frank does finally put on the sunglasses and sees the aliens, the overhead drones, and individual aliens using their watches to teleport. Frank and Nada rent a room and are tracked down by Gilbert. Um. <clears throat> There's that. That's all right. Just like it's the love story. They go and they like oh, okay. they show up at the hotel. <laughs> yes, and they're all bloody. And he goes, "I'd like a room." <laughs> and I was like, "I bet you do." <laughs> so they rent a room and are tracked down by Gilbert, who tells them about a meeting of the anti-alien movement. They attend and are given contact lenses that will replace the sunglasses and apparently don't give them headaches. The Resistance tells them that the aliens are using pollution to acclimatize the Earth to be more like their own planet and are exploiting Earth's resources for their own gain. There are also willing human collaborators, willing to cover for the aliens in return for power and plenty. The Resistance wants to disrupt the signal, but Holly, who has Nada's original pair of sunglasses, shows up at the meeting and says that won't work. As she's apologizing to Nada for not believing him, the cops blow a hole in the wall and start shooting up the Resistance. Anna, props to Carpenter. This film has not one, not two, but three separate, I guess you could call them jump scares, but I think like plot twists that I did not see coming. So the two that that shocked me in this act were first Holly's sudden like just badass, you know, destruction of Nada and kicking him out of the, the apartment. And the second was the police raid, which I also was not expecting. What say you? Yes, I agree. I think more love scenes should be broken up by a flashbang grenade. <laughs> more awkward badly done love scene should be broken up by a, I really by a, I think that would have given the original Top Gun actually a lot of like it would have kicked it up a notch I think that's fair <laughs> and yeah it turns out Holly has a lot more gumption than you'd think for someone who like a minute ago was purring I'll do whatever you want whenever you want just don't hurt me like it's not a great performance there's, there's it's hard to as they well, said whatever the spin she puts on that yeah. is like very kinky. Yes, like, it's very weird. I was I, I again. I did not watch the film when she said that. I was like, okay, where is this film going now? Because like I could see one way where it would go. <laughs> I know. The pizza delivery guy shows up. <laughs> did you order the extra large? No, sorry. <laughs> and this is like the second thing in the movie that I think is intentionally funny, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. You you confirmed? Do you think the cops, the number of cops, is intentionally? I mean, funny? it's got to. It, it's over the top. I mean, I assume it's the, intended to be funny. Yes, that is some fall that Rowdy takes. Yes, <laughs> that was. It is not as long as the fight scene. I don't think. No, but it was Princess Bride level of falling. <laughs> yes. yes, he just keeps falling, and then he gets up and he keeps falling. Yeah, it's like I hope it was supposed to be funny. Maybe taking advantage of you know his ability to like take falls. Like, as a wrestler, I don't know. Well, that would certainly like, explain the fight scene, which is, as you say, there is a wrestling feel. It's intentional. It. It's, yeah. it's what John Carpenter wanted yeah. a WrestleMania scene yeah. in this movie. Yeah. And, you know, now that I think about it, it makes perfect sense to me that John Carpenter is a WrestleMania fan. <laughs> like, it's that some people really appreciate that artifice as mm-hmm. an art form, you know, yeah. and, like, love it for its fake realness. Right. Like, they love that it's sort of just it's, it's upfront with how fake it is. Yeah. And that gives it a level of honesty. Right. And I think that Carpenter, I can see Carpenter really loving that particular yeah. vibe. And I will say, this is also where, I, I mean, look, part of being a good actor is being able to do decent fight scenes. And, and Piper is great in this in the fight scene. So, the, yeah, yeah, like sure. props to him on that. Yeah. All right. Let's close this with Act 4, ending on a nude note. So, Frank and Nada are cornered in an alley by the cops who have raided the anti-alien movement. Frank manages to activate one of the alien watches, and they teleport to an underground complex. They then stumble into a dinner meeting of aliens, and... <laughs> I love that scene, actually. It, it's a really bizarre thing where it's like they suddenly, it's like... It's the White House correspondence it, Yeah, it was like an award show dinner or something. You know, it, it was an interesting contrast to the bunker that you see uh, outside. But anyway, it's of uh, aliens and human collaborators celebrating the elimination of the resistance it's cell. doing a monologuing, like, just literally doing a mon- like doing the, like, mustache-twirling monologue. Oh, it's like, no, it's We've like... We conquered! It, we won! Yeah, it's like the alien... It, no, it's like the alien won the Academy Award award for best invasion because he then thanks yeah. the collaborators in assisting their the on- little people yes, the, in assisting their <laughs> ongoing quest for multi-dimensional expansion one of the shantytown drifters approaches them assuming that they are also collaborators one of the shantytown drifters in a top yes 
now. Right. All gussied up. <laughs> approaches Nada and Frank, assuming that they have, to, if they're in this room, clearly they're also collaborators. He then gives them a uh, informal tour of the complex, including a truly bizarre teleportation scene that, like, didn't make any sense to me. I'm not sure why that was there, but okay, fine. The tour ends in the basement of Cable Channel 54, the source of the signal, because if you're going to do the source of the signal, you want a cable channel higher than 50 at this point. Uh, <laughs> you're not going to go one of the major networks. That's too obvious. The source It's a UHF yeah. channel. The source of the signal is protected by armed guards. Nana and Frank start shooting their way around, killing the world's least competent soldiers ever. They find Holly and fight their way to the roof where the transmitter actually is, but in the last shocking twist, Holly turns out to be a collaborator and kills Frank. Holly gets it's pretty shocking because it's completely un, like they don't set it up at all. No, I mean there was no setups. Like, uh, but like I, I actually think that was good. Like I was legitimately surprised by that. That was one of those twists on it that I like to say like is a twist that if you think back on it, it actually totally makes sense. But it was genuinely yeah. surprising in the moment. Um, I guess I mean if because there is that scene where where after. Um, Nada is at her house, which is like a famous house, by the way. Like, I architecturally, I recognize it. It's been in other movies mm-hmm. and stuff. But she calls the station, and her conversation is really cagey sounding. Yeah. But her acting is also bad. Right. So. It is. I, I grant you, like, there's. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Kim Cattrall, I think, would have actually killed in this role, so it's a shame. I think so, too. Yes. Holly turns out to be a collaborator and kills Frank. Holly then gets the drop on Nada, but he pulls out the world's tiniest gun from his sleeve and kills Holly. This little pea shooter is fantastic, because not only does he kill Holly with it, he uses the same pea shooter to destroy the transmitter, thereby destroying the alien's ability to disguise their appearances. The film ends with everyone seeing the aliens for who they are. Oh, but not before he says fuck you and gives the aliens the finger in his dying gesture. Maybe this was the cut that I saw. I didn't see him doing that, though. That's the interesting oh. thing. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 in the, the AMC Plus version. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so you did see that. I, I mean, like, I think I, he said fuck you, I think, but I don't see the, like him giving the finger or whatever. Yeah. All right, Anna, let's get to the last shot of this film because it kind of encapsulates the role that gratuitous nudity played in the 1980s cinema. Teenage me didn't think there was anything wrong with that, just to be clear, but middle-aged me was just puzzled by the abruptness of the ending. I mean, it literally ends with a topless woman having sex with someone who turns out to be an alien and then fade to black. It was a weird way, in my opinion, to end the film. Uh, what say you? Dan, filmmakers like John Carpenter and George Romero <laughs> have to show more restraint. <laughs> Which is literally what you hear one of the aliens saying like about 30 seconds before that last shot. Yeah, there's a there's a montage of like people seeing the aliens for really who they are. Yeah. And they just say a bunch of like culture war stuff, which is it's pretty funny. I agree that that last scene is very strange. Right? No, it's and literally also very eighties boobs. By the yeah. way, those are like <laughs> fair enough. No, no, no it, those are like liked, little helium. Yeah, balloons. I liked all the other stuff. Like I liked everyone. Like <laughs> I liked the culture war stuff, and I liked everyone reacting to that. It is literally that last shot which I just found inexplicable. Yeah, it, you know, I'm not going to complain too much. I appreciate a tight ninety minute movie. Oh yeah. Absolutely. You know, like, and I appreciate and, boobs on it. I don't want to like say I don't like gratuitous <laughs> movies at times, but like it is a strange scene. It was scene. a weird a scene, scene to end. Let's just, yeah. I just, yeah, it's a weird scene. Yeah. I, again, this is sort of Carpenter though. Like he does, he's got his vision, <laughs> you know. And I believe that that wasn't something someone told him to put in. Oh like, no, whatever he it definitely is, put like, that in he's himself. Like, yeah. This, this is. I am saying something. I don't know what he think he's saying, but. I believe that he was earnestly saying it. Fair enough. So Totally fair. Dan? Yes, Anna? Is there IR in this film? Anna, I have come on this podcast to chew bubblegum and tell you if there is IR in this film. And I am all out of bubblegum. So I guess I better tell you about the IR. I hope I read that like Piper, which was like, it, it's a weird line reading even. Like it's a great line, but like he, it's a very ponderous line read that he gives. So I, I think there are two levels of IR in this film. There's the good kind and the bad kind. The good IR is all really about the subtle application of power. We've talked before on the podcast about the sort of different faces of power. So the first face of power is the idea of coercion. It's, it's A, getting B to do what B would otherwise not want to do. 
The second phase of power is often about agenda setting. It's limiting the menu of choice and sort of forcing people to do what they think is free choice, but actually make decisions that are perfectly consistent with what those in power want. And then the third face of powers is far more about domination and changing preferences, getting others to want um, what you want. And we see the aliens use all three faces of power in this film. But it's clear that they don't actually want to use coercion until and unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, which makes sense. Like force. Yeah, like force. That's what, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that makes sense, by the way. Using force is costly um, and it can lead to negative feedback. So inducements and subliminal conditioning are much easier. And I think that is sort of consistent with the fact that the humans, when they're told they're actually living in a world of domination, get headaches and aren't necessarily thrilled with the idea. And and as the drifter says at one point, people give in like at the first glance, you know, at the, at the first offer of something. So that might as well join the winning team. Yes. So that all actually pretty much spot on by Carpenter. And I, I like the discussion, you know, the discussion of capitalism, which we're going to get to is a touch obvious. The use of power <laughs> I actually thought was a little more subtle by Carpenter. And I thought actually made a great deal of sense. Now let's get to the bad IR in the film though, which is the absurd organizational structure that both the resistance cell and the alien control apparatus apparently exercise, which is to say that, and this is where the tight 90 sort of works against Carpenter because they're both way too centralized. Okay. They're just the one. There's just the There's one. Just the one. There's like the one, the one transmitter in Los Angeles and the one resistance cell. So first of all, if yeah. you're doing a resistance, the last thing you do is get everyone in the same goddamn room. <laughs> Okay, like that is a surefire way that you are going to get killed and destroy the resistance. So, you know what? Those anti-alien, you know, resistors, they deserved what they got there. But that said, the aliens... And you're so easily infiltrated, like with Holly. Exactly. Uh, That said, the aliens also deserve what they got, because if all you have is one, you know, resistance machine that's going to brainwash everyone, and it literally takes a gun the size of, like, a tennis ball, it's like the least impressive gun in the entire film to destroy it, then you know what? That's poor strategic planning on both sides and, and both <laughs> both structures deserve to fall as far as I'm concerned. On so um, before we get it, I, I think it's funny that I'm going to use the same line. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> like, what do you, do you think? I can change it. No, I think, I think, I think it, it's the one line. I mean, you know, there, okay. there are a few others, but like this is, this is the, the iconic line. We both get to use it. Okay. Yeah. So, Anna. Yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this film buried underneath somewhere? <laughs> you need special glasses. Yeah, to do you need see special it? glasses to see it? Dan, <laughs> I've come here to chew bubblegum and criticize capitalism, <laughs> and I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> so let's go for all it. All right. Yes. So I texted you while I was watching the movie that I wasn't even sure if I wanted to do this section <laughs> because it's not fun to just read aloud like quotes from the movie, <laughs> you know? There's text. Like, there's not subtext here. There's just there's text. text. I'm just going to do some of the quotes here. Yeah. They're free enterprisers. The earth is just another developing planet. They're third world. Let's see. Uh, it's a new morning in America, says one politician. <laughs> <laughs> they just want to keep us asleep, keep us selfish. Their intentions to rule rests on the annihilation of consciousness. We are only focused on our own gain. <laughs> they are dismantling the sleeping middle class. Come on, I could go on. Yeah. Not as fun. Not as fun. No, no. So you suggested we talk about whether or not the film was successful in its criticism and its approach. So that means I have to ask you, Dan, as the resident capitalist stand yeah. around here, mm-hmm. did this turn you around? Are you ready to, ready to vote for Bernie? Are you going to come with me, put the ruling class up against the wall? No. What do you Sorry. got? <laughs> you know, no? Didn't work? Let me put it this way. Are you not convinced? This, this, this is what I will say. <laughs> and like, I don't, you know, part of the problem is, is that it's not like I want to be ruled by anyone, but if I got to choose between the alien overlords or Rowdy Roddy Piper, not the most stable man, I'm just going to say, maybe I might choose the, the, like, it's like choosing, you know, it's like choosing the Amazon. Everybody sells out sometime. You know what it is? It's that we talk about the power of corporations and I, I, 
I do think there's something to be said for like corporations like Amazon and Disney that are extremely powerful, but they're also mm. actually good at what they do mostly. You know, in the sense of like getting you products, <laughs> making workers pee in bottles, or sure. you know, providing entertainment <laughs> or what have you. And I guess I will choose them still over the anarcho-syndicalist, you know, intentional society. I guess. But also, I don't That's think the situation bad. is quite as as stark as the the movie posits, perhaps. Um, and that might be. The I thing. don't think there are actual aliens living among yeah. us, like putting subliminal messages into our media. I think the messages aren't subliminal. True. Also, I, I live this way. The truly subversive thing that capitalism has done in the 40 years since this movie came out is that it actually has given the impression that rebellion is the way to act and weirdly has sort of married that to capitalism. <clears throat> May I introduce you to the idea of the commodification of dissent? There we go. Yes. Uh, actually, that is a book written by my old friend Tom Frank, ah. first editor of The Baffler. Author of What's the Matter with His, Kansas, yes. Author of What's the Matter with Kansas. Yeah. Um, he and I shared a thesis advisor at UFC. Ooh. Yeah. And his thesis was actually about um, 1960s advertisers. Oh, interesting. And, and, and the com- that's the name of the, the commodification of dissent. And using, like, the language of the, sub- of the of counterculture subcultures and, yeah. and counterculture to sell, to sell shit. Yeah. And yeah, that's what people do. That live this um, way. I, I kind of wish Carpenter <laughs> had done. I w- if there was a sequel, I would I would have liked to have seen Carpenter deal with that theme rather than the sort of straightforward text. And I'm not sure he would have. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. Well, it's all. I mean, like I think Tom would say part of it is just when you. It's it's what happens when you take up style mm-hmm. and and don't translate you know, the meaning. Yeah. So like one way to do it would be just to have like all, rather than yuppies, you have like hipsters. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just all, it's what is empty signifiers basically. Like if you put an anarchy sign on a Gucci bag, if Gucci puts it there, it doesn't mean very much, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. I do want to say a couple of things. One is the fight scene <laughs> is not how I want communism to work or <laughs> socialism to work. Uh, I don't want to have to beat people into the revelation that capitalism is bad. That's good. <laughs> like, that's, I'm, I'm glad you, you. I'm glad you would disapprove of such methods. Yeah, so I feel. I feel like that's not okay. what I. How I would handle. You know, sort of waking up the sheeple. It's a small part of me that wants to see video of you trying to do that, though. But yeah, I think <laughs> that, that's probably. Yeah. And then the last thing is, as we were agreeing that this movie was all text and no yeah. subtext. I sent you a Ringer article that was like, wait, can we, like, we have to pull it up. Like, I have to pull up the exact article because the title and subtitle, the headline uh, was, seemed to put lie to the fact that we needed to talk about this. So here we go. This is from 2018. John Carpenter's They Live was supposed to be a warning. (laughs) We didn't heed it. We didn't even understand it. Okay. Subhead, the horror master's most prescient movie has nothing to do with serial killers or vampires. It's about greed and propaganda, and it's truer than ever. Someone had to write that, Dan. Someone felt like they needed to write that, which I find, you know, maybe this movie is more necessary than I realized. I don't know. I but I mean, it's, uh, uh, how do I put this gently? I think I have a higher opinion of American moviegoers. I mean, it's not that. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I think it's not that people didn't listen. It's just like they don't. It, that's just not. I mean, one thing you could say about this movie is, of course, that it fails because we're still living in the system of capitalism. Right. I mean, that it, that is well, one way to well, look at it. Well, until 2025, Anna, when like apparently this right. is all supposed to come to fruition or something. But yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, but all these critiques, I mean, everything that we talk about, like all these critiques exist within the system of capitalism. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they're empty. That's actually something that I used to argue about with Tom oh. in our thesis advisor. Like, who was your thesis you know, advisor? Office. Neil Harris. Okay. He's a mid-century dude. Actually, uh, earlier than that, too, the class I took with him that I really loved was actually about um, Barnum. Oh, cool. It was about the creation of sideshows and museums Who's in America. Who's a very important figure in uh, Tufts University history. Huh. Tufts are called the Jumbos because of Barnum. He didn't go to Tufts, but he was a huge benefactor of the university. And there are buildings named okay. after him. So, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. So wait. Oh, oh. 
shit. Oh, it's broken sunglasses. No, 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 it's Anna. It's like the beginning of our six-minute fight. <laughs> Stop and talk for a second. Put them on. No, no, no you don't put them on. on. This podcast is about international relations. No, it's about capitalism. <laughs> The other thing I wanted to say with that fight scene, the thought I had watching yeah. it was like, at some point, if someone was fighting you to put on the sunglasses, I guess maybe you'd keep fighting because it just seemed so weird that they wanted you to so bad. But if someone like threw a punch at me and was like, I will stop throwing punches at you if you put on these sunglasses, I'd kind of be like, okay. You know what? The thing about fighting, Anna, <laughs> is that once you start, but this is, but they can't, but they can't, the they can't make love. Argument. Yeah. So it's not really about the sunglasses. But I will say this, like it's, what, it, it is a bizarre fight if for no other reason that like there are times even during the fight where it's like, they, they look like clearly they're enjoying themselves, which it, it was yeah. very like they, they're, well, yeah. That's because it's a it's, homosocial expression of their true yes. desires. Okay. All right, it's time for the debris field. This is the part where we talk about the stuff that we might not have gotten to during the rest of the podcast. There's always something. It's yeah. crazy. Anna, do you want to go first this time? Um, I will go. First of all, much like dogs, the street preachers always know. <laughs> the blind street preachers. The blind street preachers always yeah. know the truth. Yeah. The guy talking at that bacon thing, the alien the alien congratulating the all the collaborators speech. yeah, yeah. He, he looks exactly like the monopoly man. that can't be a coincidence <laughs> which i must i believe is intentional yeah, yeah. you noted the weird teleportation station yeah, scene yeah. i like the idea that space travel apparently for aliens is exactly like taking an airplane <laughs> including like you have a suitcase Actually, they look like briefcases to me, but yes, yes. Well, yeah, suitcase, briefcase. Maybe it was a business commute. It was a business flight. It's taking the Delta shuttle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know? But that whole sequence I really loved because it is a testament to how easy it is to sneak into places if you just kind of act like you belong. That's true. Yes. Yes. I will not, we will not take an entire sort of section to talk about this, but at some point, perhaps during an AMA, I will talk more about it, which is I did this a lot at DC in DC. Mm. Like I did, I did a fair amount of just putting on a fancy dress and going to a black tie thing. I uh, actually think this is, I mean this sincerely. This is a pre Obama. Actually, it was like very easy, but this is also a skill that a place. lot of reporters have. I think that reporters yeah. are really good at going to events. They're not necessarily invited to, but seeming like they belong and making it appear to others like, it's no big deal that I'm here. You should relax. I mean, I, I've, it's not just you. I've seen other reporters do this and I'm always like, it's not something that I'm good at. And I'm always impressed by those who, who do have that ability. Well, the trick is you are there. You yeah. are supposed to be like the trick yeah. is you convince yourself like I am supposed to be yeah. here. I am doing my job. That's true. Like, it's not a lie. <laughs> like I am here for a reason. It's just not the same reason everyone else is here. Yes. So... Um, I think actually the best catchphrase situation in the movie is when the alien asks, do you have your authorization cards? And they shoot them. <laughs> That's actually the funniest yes. catchphrase situation. And uh, I will just also say there is a we, we could probably talk more about the uh, alien resistance scene. Mm-hmm. And there is a speech that the guy from the shantytown gives it's actually weirdly reminiscent of like a middle manager sales speech like you know he's like none of you are doing enough sales like we need to bring more people in it it, it does make the (laughs) anti-alien movement seem like a multi-level marketing scheme that's yeah that was fair yeah yeah and he he says that you know the grenades and guns aren't going to be that useful it it turns out (laughs) quite useful yeah it's not either either or on it, I guess would be the way to put it. I agree. All right, what do you got? So, as I said before, the score is to this film I actually really liked. It's very simple, but like bluesy, and it really worked. One thing I actually did laugh at was there's a moment in the, the, when the shantytown is being cleared where like what look like SWAT vans pull up, but instead of it being a SWAT van, it says Scientific Investigations Division, which I'm like, that's not a thing, actually. And I was like, I'm just wondering who came up with that idea. It's one of the things that makes Carpenter a, a good filmmaker. Mm-hmm. We talk about it a lot. It's when someone pays attention yes. to like details like That's that. That's true. That's fair. Yeah, exactly. So I, lo- I love it. I love that he did that. That's okay, great. most of these subliminal messages that you see when you put on the sunglasses are like at the level of conform and obey or what have you. There was one I, did, I did notice, though, that said sleep eight hours. And that is good advice on it, okay? So, <laughs> I, I, you know, maybe the aliens aren't all bad is all I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, so as I said, 
the actress playing Holly was not good, and I had in my notes at one point, is she on Quaaludes during this scene? And I think it was the scene where, like, Piper had, like, not a has her hostage, and she just seems way too chill for for that sort of sequence of events. I will do anything. Yes, exactly. Whenever. But it's like, also, it's like, <laughs> she says it in such an affectless way. It's like, I will do anything, anywhere. It, it, it was... It was very odd. While the the primary catchphrase is really good, some of the other lines are good. I, I did like "brother, life's a bitch" and she's back in heat. That you're not going to forget a line like that when you hear it. I know I shouldn't care about continuity in a movie like this, Anna, but I will say that if you're going to have a six or seven minute fight scene in which they like then go into the hotel all bloody and beaten up. The fact that that night they then show up to the alien movie without any swelling, any bruising, any indication that they've been in a fight. Yeah, like, that was a bit much. Like, either make the fight shorter or actually, like, you know, have a little bit of swelling. While I did think the call out to John Carpenter was a touch indulgent, I did like the fact that he also mentioned George Romero, who does fit in the same sort of category in some ways. And then finally... He's got some critiques of capitalism. Yeah, he's got a few critiques of capitalism. (laughs) And then finally, like, this was honestly the most bizarre moment in the film, and I did laugh when I see this. In that last ten minutes where they're, like, racing through the cable channel to try to find the transmitter, at one point, Nada asks this woman sitting at a desk, can you tell me where the transmitter is? And she does say where the transmitter is. And then Piper, like, pets her hand in gratitude. Like, even though (laughs) he's carrying, like, many, many guns. It was just... It was the most bizarre little aside in this film, and I have to think that he didn't mean to do that, but like did it once accidentally, and Carpenter kept it in or something. It it it's just a I did laugh at that. Yeah, yeah. It's it is like I said, it is an enjoyable movie despite or because of the fact that it's so over the top yeah. in its message. Yeah, I and it, I, if I had to say why I mean, it talked a little bit about like why does it succeed even though other movies that are this didactic fail? I think it's because of the good bad rules that we yeah. kind of been. We should write down sometime. at some point. We should do like we should do a Metapod episode where we talk about the good bad rules. The two big ones for me are always the attention to detail. Mm-hmm. Like, does someone is someone really thinking through the world that they're yeah. presenting, right? And and I think that Carpenter definitely is mm-hmm. doing that, right? And then there is like just selling, just meaning it, mm-hmm. just like really like a level of earnestness and enthusiasm. That's true. That yeah, the film is... I, that helps sell I, it, basically. I think the film you know? is held back by some bad acting. I, I mean, Keith David is, is, I think, the only... He's great. He's great, but he's the, also the only real actor among the leads. And, like, it, yeah. it, it would have been nice if there had been more. But that said, the ones who are acting not great, it's not that they're doing this, like, in a jokey way. They believe what they're doing. And mm-hmm. so you're right. That does make it work. But, like, in some ways, I guess my take... I, I, this is an enjoyable movie. It's a good, pulpy movie. I actually think this could have been a really great movie with yeah. like another draft of the script and like slightly and, and better actors. I think this could have been an actually like invasion. Kurt Russell and Kim right. Cattrall. This could have been invasion of and the body David. snatchers level. Great is what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 It just misses it by a hair, yes. but it's still super enjoyable. It, it obviously has a huge cult following. Yeah. It got semi good reviews when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, people thought it was a little didactic. <laughs> <laughs> well, not so, according to I'm the still ringer. Not sure, like, about I mean, how, like, you know. there is like writing you see on the internet that's like, let me unpack for you the movie they live, <laughs> and I just, I think your time could be better spent. I sent you some poor like person's thesis on this, oh, which is like, come on, you know, I mean, yeah. you really you work harder <laughs> or don't work. Exactly, do a different film. All right, if you're gonna do that, do something different. Yeah. Do it for the. Oh, I also wanted to say about Keith David that I do ha- I do feel like Keith David is one of the actors like Harry Dean Stanton and Emmett Walsh mm-hmm. that if he is in a movie, it, it there is something recoverable about. Yes. It. Like or more importantly, he, they are never bad in a film. Would be the way I yeah. would put it. Like you can give them like you know he's in Armageddon for example, which we, we well, at some point we'll get to that. But like it's a small role and he's really really good in it. Um, you always remember him in that. It says something. I think Keith David was in that film, and then there's something about Mary in the same year, which it's a credit, <laughs> like the, to be able to like actually pull off roles in both. He's got films. range. Exactly. He's got the range. Yeah. All right. Well, that is about it for us. We do sincerely have the next year planned out, <laughs> which I I feel like I I want to share with people, but on the same 
at the same time, I feel like I might be jinxing yeah. us somehow. So maybe we'll share like the next month's, we, you know, agenda or, or something like that. But we, we do have, we have a lot of plans, but I guess we'll still take suggestions. Mm-hmm. Um, someone wants us to, to fit um, Star Trek. Into Star Trek 2, Wrath of Khan, which it, it's possible. I mean, it's I'm, hot sci-fi summer. I it, mean, it's, that's definitely both hot and that sci-fi is a film I want to do at summer. Some point, so yeah, totally fair. And we are, by the way, denizens of the Discord, we are taking your suggestions on the Futurama yes, arc. Yes, that is one of the things we planned out. Do. Yep. And for our fellow For All Mankind stands, mm-hmm. uh, we're definitely going to do both an arc from season two and an arc from season three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm enjoying season three. Oh, so am I. And we are also going to do the last episode of Strange New Worlds. Yes. yes along with yes. the... Uh, so we've got a lot of... We've got some Star Trek. We've got some Star Trek. Like, yeah, we're... Yeah. We're going to have to do some Star Wars. That, if you say so. I, I can do I that. I mean, yeah. I like sci-fi. Star Wars is that great. Is <laughs> so. Oh. <laughs> Ex-husband. <laughs> it is to laugh. Okay. All right. Until then, everybody. Keep this channel open for more. Obey. Okay.